You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour. I, on the rare occasion now, jump in as co-host of Michael Easley in Context. And today we're doing something fun. I am in the interviewer chair while Michael Easley, my dad, is in the interviewee chair. And we thought we would talk a little bit about the book of Philippians on another podcast on Michael Easley's sermons. We just finished a 23 episode series on the book of Philippians. It is expository teaching verse by verse, chapter one to chapter four. You're going to get so much goodness out of it. So if you haven't listened to it and you want to just slowly go through a book of the Bible, Philippians would be a great one to study and you would have that sermon series to go alongside you and help you. But we thought we'd just talk today about this book. So dad, why Philippians? I mean, you could have chosen from Genesis to Revelation to teach what was it about Philippians, this time, this place? My good friend, Charlie Boyd, who went to Dallas Seminary with we uh, other friends, Charlie was a straight-A student at seminary, and uh, we would have study group every uh, morning, like at 7 yeah. o'clock for coffee. Sure. We had the McDonald's on one corner and Jack in the Box on the other, only choices. So we go get, you know, it was disgusting coffee. <laughs> but that's what you do. So right. so we would meet there, and Charlie would have done, we call them Charlie charts. He would have taken like 20 pages of Longhand notes from John Hanna and condensed them into like a one chart. Oh, God bless! And he would do the and we and he would quiz us on vocabulary, on syntax. And sure. so we joked about we got through seminar on Charlie's coattails. <laughs> um, so anyway, he remains a friend for all these years. But Charlie and I would often talk about. We're going to preach next. We're going to preach next. And he would say, "You got to preach something." <laughs> so the, the real short answer, answer is he got to yeah, do something. Some. The more in depth answer, which is almost as trivial, is I was finishing up the prior series in Christy Condor, who does our uh, children's ministry uh, sermons to kids, which is fabulous. She said, you know, I'd love for you to teach Philippians someday. I went, hmm. okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> and, and I hadn't taught it. Ever? Well, I think I taught parts of it, wow. uh, but I had not taught the whole book. And so, yeah. Interesting. So, and I, you know, it's like anybody that does Bible study. Once you get into it, you fall in love with it. Totally. And so it, w- it was a delight to study it. And, and yeah. And, and the same thing happened with teaching Proverbs now. I was winding up Philippians, and I said to your mom, what should I teach next? Proverbs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in the near future, we will start releasing a series on Proverbs. Whatever uh, somebody tells me. Okay. All right. now, now, I was asked to teach Revelation, and I said no. Well, you taught what? The first I did few the first, chapters? Well, that... and that's what most pastors do, the first sure. seven chapters. But, you know, they're experts in that field, like Mark Hitchcock and uh, Ron Rhodes, that I would say, go listen to their series. But right. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, Philippians is a short book. Yes. It's four chapters, yes. 104 verses, yet you spent 23 weeks, that's half a year, man, on this book. So obviously it is a rich text, not that any mm-hmm. part of the Bible is not rich, but what are a few takeaways you really hope your congregation or the folks that listen on Michael Izzy Sermon's take from this book that they remember. Well, one thing about this letter is it's often considered his joy letter, his happiest letter, mm-hmm. his most encouraging letter. And there is truth in that because Corinthians, as I tell people, when you read Corinthians, remember the word corrective. Yep. And Ephesus is more doctrinal. And of course, Romans is, is a, a lifetime study. Treatise. But, <laughs> right. But, but Philippians is a fairly easy letter to read. Yeah. It is an encouraging letter. And seriously, to be more than just someone saying, hey, preach Philippians. Right. I think one of the big takeaways is choosing joy no matter what your circumstance. Because we are experiential people. We, we want things to be happy and work out a certain way. And Philippians was a good, and folded into this when we get into this, there's some 
sort of, uh, now let me uh, straighten your shirt collar here a little bit. Let me get in your face a little bit, but he's kind in the way he does it. And so it was. it's a delightful letter to read. It's easy to read. I mean, looking at my Bible, it's two pages front and back, three pages. So you can read it in like 15, 20 minutes yep, at a absolutely. careful pace. But, you know, your comment about a long time, 23 messages, I was trained in the day I went to seminary, paragraph by paragraph was kind of the motto. And it is the living word of God. It's not to be run, rushed over. And we were talking before we began recording the last couple of messages, I got more input than any of the rest of the book, mm. which is we can get to. But yeah, just don't rush over it. Take your time and you got to preach something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How personally, how did studying and teaching Philippians impact you? As a student of the Bible, I go through a grid. I, I read it and I try to ask questions like, what would people, if they read this for the first time, what would they wonder? Mm-hmm. Trying to read it without my own presupposition or pre-knowledge, which is impossible, but I try. A first-time reader might wonder. Secondly, I go through what's called an exegetical lens. So I'm looking at the language, the structure, the content. I'll look at the vocabulary. I'm a word study guy. I love vocabulary. What's he repeating? What's he using? I try to look at the context. I try to look at you know what's going on historically when he wrote the book, what we know. Sometimes we don't know precisely. I like to look at the characters talking about Timothy on the front end, so we know he's with Timothy. And I look for unusual or only mentioned type things. So as as I do this in my own study, and then, of course, I'm looking at theologically what's the scope of the book. Along the way, there's different things that will trigger in my heart. The prayer, obviously, Paul's prayers always grab me because I feel like I'm terrible as a person of prayer. He says here in chapter 1, verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And that just catches me. And then he prays again throughout the book. And I go, you know, this is an area the apostle was dependent upon. So that's always one that hits me. The anxious for nothing passages that most people know about is it was obviously a rich restudying that. And again, everything by prayer Mm -hmm. and supplication with Thanksgiving. So I would say prayer and choosing joy, probably the two most personal aspects of it for me. Mm-hmm. Do you think it hits different? I mean, it, it has to. If you studied Philippians when you were 25, it's going to hit different than when you're 65 and your season of life. Anything there that you want to share? Yes, Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 15, are bookends that I had known about, but I never studied in depth. And this has to do with what I call, you know, John Hannah said he wants to write a book, misapplied verses that God has greatly blessed. Yep. So this is one that always grates me, and it grates me even more. Uh, in view of your participation with the gospel until the first day and until now, I'm confident of this very thing that he began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's used as a sanctification verse. Yep. You might be old enough to remember when they had T-shirts, God is uh, under construction, God oh, is still yeah, at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's taken from Philippians 1, 5, and 6. And it's taught as he who began a good work in you yeah. will perfect it. It's not about sanctification. It's about money. Yeah. And he's telling them, you started giving and you quit. Huh. And the key word is in chapter 1, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel. And later in verse 7, you are partakers of the gospel. And then at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 15, we read, you yourselves know 
Philippians at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And that word shared is the same word in chapter one, verse five, when he talks about participation. Or, oh, interesting. Participation, so, yeah. so he's what he's booking in this this little letter is you started out great, you need to finish that. And then he reminds them in an encouraging way, uh, don't forget. I want you to, to make good on your promise, so to speak. So even though it's a joyful letter, he's, uh, and, and then I, I love as he continues, it's not about him. He says, I've received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable to God, well-pleasing to God. My God will supply all your needs. He said, God supplied all my needs. God supplied all your needs. It's more important that you fulfill your commitment to give to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't just a support raising mm -hmm. for his endeavor. Mm -hmm. He's saying you need to do this because of your commitment to the Lord. Giving is spiritual. Giving is important. And I think, Hannah, in our context today, people... They don't give. If they give, they give impulsively. They give one time. They mm -hmm. give to something that is heart-rendering or guilty or whatever. But they don't view uh, supporting the local church anymore. Uh, and so it, it, that, to me, was reinforcing. You need to talk about money. You need to not be afraid. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably overstate the case, but I don't take a salary from our church. And I do that for a number of reasons, but at the end of the day, it's... And not that that's right for everybody. There, I mean, you, you needed to take a salary from the church for... All my life. For, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the way the labor is worthy of his wages, but your mom and I are at a place in life where things are different. Yeah. And so we're trying to set a church up, for those of you that don't know, for, yeah. for a successor that will have the resources to do what they need to do next. That being said, it, it gives me a freedom. So personally, oh, I can, to say whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, and to talk about money more specifically because I'm asking uh, for my own uh, pocket. Uh, 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 you need to pay my uh -huh. salary, folks. Yeah. I mean, whenever a pastor asks for money, it's like, yeah, let's give her money. Right. And he's on salary. I understand that. It's been my life. So now it's almost I'm on the sidelines saying you need to give to the Lord's work and you need to be careful, of course, where you're giving and how you're giving and analyzing the groups you write checks to, uh -huh. see how they use their money. Uh -huh. But anyway. Okay, so that's a verse that's often misunderstood and, and misapplied. So are there some other verses in Philippians that people particularly, whether it's misunderstood or misapplied, it's just they're hard verses people get hung up on? or I think we're struck by the be anxious for nothing but everything in prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely passage, but I think we miss the Pauline theology that connects this passage because right before it, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's told them just before that, stand firm. And then he says, let your gentle spirit, this is chapter four, verse five, be known to all men, the Lord's near. Now, if, if we keep that flow of thought, he said, stand firm, Rejoice. Rejoice no matter your situation because they're struggling yeah. at this point. And then he says, now, be anxious for nothing. So there's a flow here of life that we can apply to to say, you know, I, put it this way. I don't need a wonderful, non-anxious presence when things are going well. All right. When I'm anxious, something's going wrong either in my soul, in my life, in my mm -hmm. family, in my job, mm -hmm. and I get stressed about it. Mm -hmm. So the only time we're told, you know, be anxious for nothing is when we're anxious. Right. So their situation had to be something going on. Yodi and Sintiki are mm -hmm. these people that are mm -hmm. arguing, apparently. We don't know the details, but it's gotten so bad that Clement had to get involved. 
And then he says, wait, rejoice. Mm -hmm. Don't get sucked down this rabbit hole of anxiety and let your gentle spirit, but be anxious for nothing. The solution is often missed, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What's he telling us? If you intercede, Mm -hmm. if you're thankful for your situation, Mm -hmm. let God know. Yeah. And I think that discipline is lost on the consequence, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. And I think it's interesting he differentiates that your heart and your mind, there's this connection hmm. for the Greek to say that, you know, sometimes we're, we think too much, you know, yep. I wake up and my mind runs a thousand miles an hour. I'm not anxious in my chest. Mm-hmm. about a person or a mm-hmm. relationship. My brain's anxious. Yeah. Other times I'm heartbroken about a child or yeah. whatever, anxious. So I think it's interesting he puts those together. Uh, to answer your question more succinctly, that passage, reviewing it for myself and trying to teach it, it was helpful. You know, the idea of dwelling, the, this, this will dwell in your life. Dwell on these things. Think about these things. What's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely. So you're you're almost exchanging you're exchanging good things for worry and fear. And that's the solution. That's the antidote, if you will, to anxiety, not just talking about it with friends. So the Bible gives great counsel. We just don't want to, you know, work <laughs> at it. Right? We don't. It's it's hard. It takes time to study this passage. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. If someone's never read the book of Philippians, we've already told them it'll only take them 15, 20 minutes max. What else would you tell them to compel them to give it a read? I would look at the times he talks about joyful things because I do believe that the subtext of the, if you will, the theme of the book is choosing joy no matter your circumstance. I'd also look at the five times he talks about opposition in the book. And there are times he exposes, not in great detail, but for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I'll back up at 14, he says, most of you brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Mm. Have far more courage to speak the word of the Lord without fear. Son, to be sure, preaching Christ out of envy and strife, some for goodwill. So here he's in prison writing this letter. Mm-hmm. How can he be so joyful if he's writing that? And then he goes on to explain the tension he's experiencing in prison. So there, there's four, five times opposition is in the background. So that's applicable. Mm-hmm. How do you now? I doubt there's anybody listening to you and me that doesn't have stress and worry and anxiety. Yeah. And I think the big message is you can choose joy, not just positive mental attitude. You can choose joy, replacing your your anxious thoughts, heart and mind, with that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, with love, joy, peace, happy. I mean, there are good things to replace it with, and that's what Paul's, I think, the big picture. Mm. What do we learn about Christ or the Trinity in the book of Philippians that perhaps another book may not touch on? Like, is there something, you know, does Philippians give us a, a lens... That's different. That's an exceptional question. Whenever we have these introductions that we tend to skip over, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have God the Father and Jesus mentioned. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes he interjects Holy Spirit. One of the interesting parts of this book, to your question, is the uniqueness of the word kenosis. Hmm. And it's found in chapter 2, and it it really verse 7 is the key verse, but let me read verse 6 who, although he's talking about an attitude we should have that's like Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is called the kenosis or the emptying passage. And a lot of theology books talk about this section. And there's a lot of debate about what it really means. But in simple terms, if Jesus Christ has eternally existed, you know, I'll often ask small groups if we're talking about this, what did Jesus look like before he was born a baby? And you know, people look at me like, that's a weird question. And I go, well, was he spirit? Was he yeah. transcendent? Did he glow? Yeah. Did he, you know, what, what did he look like? Right. And I and I often grab my forearms and say, did he have a corporeal mm-hmm. nature? Mm-hmm. And most people don't have the answer. And I say, well, let's look at Abraham when he encounters the angel of the Lord. Let's look at look at Joshua when he wrestles with the captain of the army. Let's look at Meshach, Shagram. Let's look at, we call those theophanies or Christophanies pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. So my argument is the Bible is not like super obvious, but it's clear that he has some kind of corporeal existence. Yeah, at least when he shows up to humans. Yeah, yeah. Now he submits himself to become a baby. Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary. She conceives. She has a son who's Jesus, and he's born out of a birth canal. He has to have diapers changed. He has all the things that any infant. So you think of the God-man emptying himself, submitting to becoming an infant. We know very little about him. And the one incident when he's probably 12-ish, when he goes to the temple. And then we have this cryptic phrase where Luke says he continued to grow in, in favor and stature before God and man which is a fascinating passage. But now when he comes on scene, he's 30-some years of age, and he has three years of life, and then we crucify him. So when you come back to this kenosis passage and look at it, I mean, Paul, you know, he, he spans so much in these phrases. Mm. He did not regard equality, but got a thing to be grasped. So this is a big debate in theology circles about is the son eternally submissive to the father? Mm. He emptied himself. The form of a bondservant. He was a slave, being made in the likeness of men, found in appearance of men, humbling himself. It was obedient all the way to death. And I've, I've been telling all our friends who listen to uh, our Stonebridge broadcast, March 27th this year, Mo Proctor preached on Gethsemane, one of the finer pieces of exposition I have heard in five or six years. Extraordinary passage, he, the way he taught this passage. And he talked about this in, 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 as a mm. passing reference about what the God-man was doing cool. in Gethsemane. To answer your question, the kenosis passage, and by the way, that may well have been a hymn in the first century. Huh. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through yeah. 11 might have been a song they sung. So anyway, that's one of the unique things of the book of Philippians. There are other passages that teach about these Christophanies and his growing, but not as uniquely as Paul talks about it in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Okay, so is the son, yeah, I want to know the answer to that question, is the son eternally submissive to the father? I believe so. I believe the Trinitarian Godhead is a mystery that we can't understand or embrace insofar as we would use the word submissive to the father that you know we're limited by the scope of human language what, by what we understand when yeah. we read in john and i get these numbers mixed john 8 26 or 26 8 but it's the verse that says i only do that which pleases the father yeah. i only do what yeah. the father tells me to do yeah. granted he's still you know god man flesh there before he's crucified right. but i i believe in the trinitarian organization god the father is the head of the trinitarian relationship they're equal 
but they have roles. And uh, in fact, I can turn over to probably find it pretty quickly. First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, again, the author, the varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, mm-hmm. varieties of ministry, but the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. And then he says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this is foundational to understand the gift passage that he's going to talk about. But back to gifts, same Spirit, ministry, same Lord, effects, same God. So what I take from this passage, granted, talking about spiritual gifts, God is the one who causes the effects of those giftings. The Spirit is the one who distributes those gifts, and the Lord is the one who is the varieties of ministries, so the one who is sort of working in those giftings. So I find it very helpful to see this Trinitarian Godhead. In fact, I've preached on this in the past that I don't think you can have a doctrine of salvation apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. So that being said, back to your question, I, I do think there's an eternal relationship our language would sound like he only does what God, he kind of sits there and waits for God the Father to tell him. The, the way they're welded together theologically, we don't understand. We'll never understand. Right, right. We can't. And illustrations like water, ice, and steam, and eggs, they all, they all fail. That's modalism. Yeah. That's modalism, three different parts. So we have to say this is an unusual, unique relationship in eternity that God the Father, Son, and Spirit exist. Even the word three persons was hugely debated in history. You don't want to use entities. You don't want to, you know, how, what kind of word do <laughs> right, you use? Right, right, right. So, that, so we're, we're very prohibited by language. Theologically, I think scripture is evident from chapter one to in Genesis. Genesis one, yeah. yeah. That we have a Trinitarian Godhead. That being said, that's a passage I think is rich and it's a passage that helps us understand there's some eternal relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, you know, he couldn't send the Spirit until he'd finished his work. He has to be ascended to send the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. who is supposed to be better than him remaining on earth. Mm. So it's pretty mind-boggling. It is. It totally is. Okay, are there other themes or, you know, like if we were skimming through a systematic theology book, are there some other topics that a lot of times theologians would be really looking at Philippians to help? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, I mean, obviously joy is a huge theme that Philippians two is a, is a major component for Christology and our understanding of, of Christ. Any other things like that, that people often go to Philippians to I would say help often understand? Go, but I would say it's not uncommon. His view of life and death in chapter uh, one, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Before we go on, if you're given the choice to be with him forever or to stay on for good hard work here, what would you choose? And he's conflicted. And then he says in verse 20, uh, 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for, for you. your sakes. Yeah. Convinced of this, I know that you will re- that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith. And that theme continues the greater progress of the gospel is one of his themes. So he's talking about not just, you know, you get to benefit because I hang around here and I'm a friend, <laughs> but no, this is progress. But, yeah. but I love this to depart with Christ, depart and be with Christ 
is better than to remain on the flesh, but I know I have to remain on the flesh. So that takes me to a lot of places. It takes me theologically to know that when I die, I'm with Christ. It takes me to say, if I'm still here, I must have a purpose. It's something you and I have talked about and a lot of my friends have talked about as we get older. Clarifying, I mean, you're, when you're raising kids at your age, when you got kids in middle school and high school and you have no life but taking care of those kids, when they go off to college, now fast forward your emptiness before you know it. And you got a lot of freedom, and God willing, you have the economy to do it. Maybe you've been good with your money and paid off your house, whatever. What's your purpose? And Hannah, I'm, I'm sorry to report most of my peer do not know what to do with themselves. And they'll travel and see grandchildren. Well, that's fine, but that can't be your only purpose right, in life. Right, And, okay, you can play golf every day. Fine, if that's what you want to do. I'm sure. not, not going to say you shouldn't. Uh, I don't want to find my purpose on the golf course. Well, and is the Lord waking you up every morning to go to the golf course? And I'm not, I mean, great, have a hobby, do some, you know, great. No but like, question. is that, is that, is that the reason that you are well, alive on this earth today? Right. Well, and, and let's <laughs> Or go does back. he maybe have other things for you to do? That's his, I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Yeah. And joy in the faith. So I would just use the word discipleship. Am I continuing to disciple and influence right. people? Right. And you know my calendar as well as anybody. I have more opportunities than I want to do. And I have to look at the opportunities and say, okay, Lord, where, where can I encourage? I don't even use the word influence anymore. Mm. Where can I encourage, especially young guys, young men who you know, might have a question for me or whatever, the mentoring idea and discipleship is falling out of favor. But the idea that I can listen to this guy, I can encourage him, I can coach him, I can say some things he may or may not listen to. But I think that's a, a big purpose for people my age is am I continuing? And and there are younger people who will look at a person like me or Dave Gibson or Robert White or some of my peer and they go, I could learn from him. That's rarer than when I was young. I think self-sufficiency is more it's a little pride in it, maybe accomplishment, whatever, entrepreneurial spirit. I don't need people, whatever. But back to purpose, I think this is one of the, for my age group, I'm 65. I say 55 and over. This is a big question. What's your purpose? So when I read that I'm still here, I haven't died of cancer. I haven't died of, you know, a heart attack or type two diabetes or dementia right. or ALS. Why am I here? Right. That's a, potent question for anyone as we get older. Hmm. What's your favorite piece or verse from Philippians? Yeah, I, I don't even, you know, and everyone says, <laughs> I, I, know, I, I know, I don't know. I didn't say I mean, the whole Bible. I just said this I know, I know. one book with only four chapters. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say this, what I, what I would long to be my favorite is three, verse seven, whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss hmm. for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Stop there. Well, we got to continue. <laughs> For whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That's a tall order. You know, I, I don't know many Christians that would say my whole life was rubbish to gain Christ. And that's an eternal perspective. I'm listening to Bruce Waltke right now, a series of lectures he gave through a, a link called Biblical Training out of, I think, Regent University, Regent College in Vancouver. But he's teaching through Proverbs, and he has he, he told a story about, it's an Anglican, what he called it, like a collect, where there's four things you do every day. 
you know, I'm a big guy on the handbook to prayer. And like right now, I'm trying to encourage our friends to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. That's super easy. But he does this four times a day. And he and his wife do it together in wow. his 80s. Wow. And he explained the first one, you know, what you're doing, and then the second one. And he, he's, he's got this delightful, very humble, he's a brilliant man, very humble, delightful voice to listen to. And he says, I find that when my wife and I do this together, we grow. And our perspective each day is kept in frame. Because most people, if you're a great Christian, you have your devotion in the morning or the evening. Yeah, yeah. He said four times a day. I'm like, well, okay, that can't be religious. It can't be legalism, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Not five calls to prayer nonsense. But but there's got to be his motivation for doing it was so precious and rich. And I thought, wow, here's a guy that gets it. And so as I look at people that are older than me, I go, boy, would I count everything in my life as loss to gain what Christ offers. I don't think many of us are there. Mm -mm. We really love this earth. We love this life. Bigger, better, newer, more. Yeah. Creature comforts. All right. Well, <laughs> final, final thought to end on, because I don't think that's what we should end on. <laughs> Another cheery Michael Weasley sermon. Always, always, always. I don't want to disappoint, you know. All right. Well, listen, if you haven't checked out the Philippians sermon series on Michael Easley sermons, I highly encourage you to do it. It really is a great sermon series. And also check out Ask Dr. E if you haven't checked out that show. And we will be back next week. I will not be in the interviewer chair. For those of you who are disappointed, I'll be gone. So don't <laughs> come back next week. We can make this a regular. <laughs> if you're listening to this, I mean, send us an email and say, I want to hand on more often. No, that's called Ask Dr. E. You'll find me there. <laughs> All right. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.